What are some things that you treasure? What are some things that you put high value on? And I got to thinking about that. This chest is actually something that I've grown attached to. When my daughter and my wife and I were antiquing in Oklahoma City, we found it. It was being sold by the person whose family it was in originally. I think it dated back to 1915. It's very heavy. Inside this chest is, are some things that I treasure. You know, and the things that you treasure may be sentimental things. It may be things that either you made or your child made or something that's been passed down in your family for a long time. Or maybe something that actually has some monetary value. You know, if you put it on eBay or Craigslist, you could actually get some money for that thing. And so I was thinking of some things that I had that kind of fall in those categories. And this is one that falls in the category of having real monetary value. This is a baseball that's over 50 years old. It's signed by all the members of the New York Yankees of either 1962 or 1963. The last time I valued it, which was several years ago, it's worth two or $300. It's signed by several Hall of Famers, including Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford and guys like that. It's pretty valuable. Perhaps there's something that you treasure that is more like this, however, more sentimental value. You have an American flag like this that was given to you. It represents for somebody their service and their sacrifice, somebody in your family perhaps. And you would not trade that for any amount of money. It's something that you treasure. And the reason I put these out here is because we treat things that we treasure differently, don't we? We put them in a box. We put them under glass. Because we know that if they, if they come in contact with a lot of dirt or light, that decreases the value of them. In fact, despite our best efforts, we know that these things are going to deteriorate over time. Which is why I don't have high hopes for this Bible. This is a Bible that has been in my family for four generations. Dates at least back 72 years. And you can see on the front leaf that in 1945, it was given to my great-grandfather by his six children. In 1972, it was given to my father. And now I have it, and I wouldn't trade it for much of anything. But that leads me to a phone poll. So get your phones out. We've done this before. We're going to do it again. Kids, you may have to give your phones back to your parents for a minute. They'll give them back in a couple of seconds. But here's our phone poll. If you will text 22333, or text GPCNWA to 22333, once you get in, it'll give you a message back, and then you can type in A, B, C, D, or F. The question is, how many Bibles does your family own? How many Bibles... Does your family own? Now, Barna did a study in which he found that 88% of all American households own a Bible. And the, the average American that owns a Bible actually has more than four Bibles. Now, when this research was done, when this poll was done, I don't think he considered virtual Bibles. Those were all the, the hard copy Bibles. So I'm going to ask just by a show of hands, how many of you have a copy of the Bible either on your phone 
or on your tablet or maybe even both? How many, how many of us? Okay, at least half. Okay, so the number of Bibles that we own is probably even more than that four that Barna had. Uversion is the most popular Bible app that there is. It's been downloaded more than 250 million times in a thousand different languages. So we have a lot of copies of God's Word, a lot of copies of the Bible. And if you're here this morning, though, and you're not a Jesus follower, you might say, yeah, and? I mean, so? What's the big deal? I mean, there's lots of books that offer advice and counseling and wisdom and direction and give us moral, moral guidance. In fact, you might say that this Bible is the reason I'm not a Jesus follower because I don't know if I can trust it. I don't know if I can believe it. And I get that. I really do. I get that. There's a lot of things in the Bible that defy common sense. There are a lot of things in the Bible that offend our 21st century sensibilities, our 21st century worldview. But Jesus followers know that the Bible is different. Why? Number one, we know that this is the word of of God from God. Paul said it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The message paraphrase says this a little bit differently. It says every part of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful one way or the other, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. And through the Word, we are put together and shaped for the tasks that God has for us. You see, the Bible is like no other book. In fact, it's not really a book. It's a collection of 66 books by 40 different authors from 13 different countries that came from all different walks of life. There were shepherds and kings and soldiers and fishermen and tax collectors and historians and scholars The books of the Bible were written across a span of 1,500 years. And yet, it tells one story. From Genesis to Revelation, it tells one cohesive story. There's one theme of the Bible, and that is God's glory. There's one purpose in the Bible, and that is the redemption of mankind. And there's one hero in the Bible, and that's Jesus. The odds of a a compilation of books like this that over 1,500 years, 40 different authors and all those kinds of things, the odds of that having one story are so infinitesimal that we couldn't comprehend it even if we could calculate it. But we know, so we know this is the Word of God from God. We also know that the Bible is different because we have personal experience with God speaking directly through His Word. Whether we need encouragement or direction or comfort, God speaks through His Word. This, This past fall, just a few months ago, Mike did an entire series on voices. 
and how to hear God's voice in the cacophony of voices that we hear every day. And many of us did a study called Experiencing God. And in that study and in that series, we discovered that God, we can get God's direction. God wants to give us His direction. But for that to happen, we have to be in an intimate, personal relationship with Him. And that only comes by being in His Word. It's really one of the great ironies, and I would dare say that it's one of the great indictments of those that claim to be Jesus followers, that though we have more access to the Bible, to God's Word, to Scripture than any generation that has ever lived, I would suggest that we value it less. And I understand basic economics. The more common something is, the less value that it has. I understand that. But consider, you know, in the underground church in China, where Bibles are largely illegal, I've read stories about them taking Scripture and and tearing out entire books of the Bible and handing them out to their church members for two reasons. One, so they won't be discovered as easily as having a copy of God's Word, but also so that they can share it with each other. They treasure it. Some of you may know that I spent most of, more than half of my growing up years in a Muslim country. And what I tell you about Muslims is they they place a high value on their scripture, on the Quran. They revere their holy book. You will never find a devout Muslim putting his scripture, the Quran, on the floor, ever. If they are walking and carrying a stack of books, they wouldn't think of putting the Quran anywhere but on top. They wouldn't put books on top of it. They would never write in their scriptures because they consider that a desecration of their their scriptures. Now contrast that, and I don't mean to shame anybody, but contrast that with our lost and found table of Bibles that we have out in the gallery. We have had these Bibles for months. We've tried to find the owners, and we still have them. I've got to wonder, did the people that lose them, did they even miss them? We can't even give them away. You know, one of the core beliefs of Grace Point is that we value the Bible. We value the Scripture. If you were part of Grace Point three years ago, and if you were contributing to Grace Point then, you funded something unique, something that had never happened in the history of the world, and, and, and that is the printing of a New Testament for the very first time in a language, in a dialect of the country in South Asia that we go to. Throw the poll back up there, guys. So we, we are confirming Barna's research, and 79% of us have more than, than four Bibles in our house, but in that same research, do you know that he found that 25% of all adult Americans have never read the Bible, which is kind of interesting considering that 88% of American households have one. Another 32% said they they only read the Bible once or maybe twice a year when they're not in church. That means that fully half of adult Americans essentially never 
read the scriptures. Never read the Bible. Never read God's word. If we, as Jesus followers, believe it's God-breathed, why don't we read it? I know some of the answers. I mean, one of the answers is it's too hard to understand, and I get that too. It's got names in there I can't even pronounce from places that I couldn't find on a map if my life depended on it. And it's about a culture that I don't really understand. I mean, I get all that. But what I find interesting is Mark Twain, who described himself as an infidel, he understood the power of the Word of God more than some believers. He said, most people are bothered by those passages in Scripture that they cannot, which they cannot understand. But as for me, I've always noticed that the passages in Scriptures which trouble me most are the ones I do understand. See, nowhere in Scripture did God excuse disobedience because His instructions were vague or unclear or hard to understand. Where people got sideways with God is when they knew exactly what God was asking them to do and they chose not to do it. So when it comes to understanding the Word of God, I would suggest that our responsibility is not to understand necessarily the things that we can't understand, we can't figure out, is to do the things that we do know, we do understand, that we can figure out, that are clear to us. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, I recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There really is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. A faith that paddles around the edge of the water is just poor faith at best. It's a little better than dry land faith, and that's not good for much. So to use the excuse that I don't really understand everything is just a poor excuse at best. The other reason that we give for not reading God's Word, I think, is that I just don't have enough time. And if I was asked for a show of hands on that, I think almost all of us would raise our hand. So let me tell you a little story. There was a time when I was working with IBM and there was a period of time when I was in sales and I was producing uh, proposals for you know, several million dollars, two or three million dollars, back when a million dollars was a lot of money. I was doing these proposals and one day, I, one time I was doing a proposal for Boeing aircraft up in Wichita. Now, I didn't live in Wichita. I lived in Tulsa. But I did this proposal for Boeing aircraft. And I, one of my senior colleagues that actually lived in Wichita, I got ready to take my proposal to Boeing. And he met me at the door and he, says, he asked me why I didn't ask for his help in creating the proposal. And the truth is that I didn't think I needed his help. And so I didn't ask him, but I really couldn't tell him that, right? So I started coming up with excuses, and I was saying things like, well, I, uh, I thought maybe you'd be too busy. Um, I didn't really know how to get hold of you because I had never met him before. I didn't really know how to get hold of you. I didn't know how to find you. And these lame excuses that sounded lame in my head, but it sounded even lamer when they came out of my mouth. And he just stood there and let me stammer and stutter for a long time. And then he looked at me, and he said, if you believed that I could get you a million dollars, you'd have made it a priority to find me. Ouch. He was right. He was right. 
It was a matter of priorities. So let me ask you, if you believed that you were going to hear God's direction for your life today, would you make it a priority to be in his word? Because see, what we do reveals what we believe. What we say isn't nearly as important as what we do. If you want to know God, your spiritual journey goes through his word. The writer of Hebrews captured its very essence in Hebrews chapter 4 when he said, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word of God is living and active. Now, in the original language, the word for active is also the same word for energy. It literally means at work. And what, God, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the word of God is always at work. Now, you can read other books. But this is the only book that can read you. This is the voice of God to you. If I want to know God, I have to go where God is. And God is found in his word. About two years ago, I was reading a book called The Insanity of Obedience, which I highly recommend. And in The Insanity of Obedience, there was a story that they told about a Muslim guy in a, in a Middle Eastern country. They didn't give me his name, didn't give me the country. But he had a vision, a dream about finding Jesus. He said, you need to find Jesus. And he's like, I don't even know who Jesus is. And I, furthermore, I don't know anybody that knows Jesus. And I don't know how to find it. That was his dream. Sometime later, a man unknown to him passed by him in the market and said, the Holy Spirit told me to give you this book, slipped it under his arm, and he disappeared. The guy never saw him again. Of course, that book was the Bible, and this young Muslim man took the Bible. He read it cover to cover three times and came to faith in Jesus. You want perspective, guidance, wisdom, direction? I I can't tell you how many times I've read this word, and God has spoken directly into my situation. There was a season... Several years back when I was, uh, I had a, a season where things were out of balance with my job and such. I'd been told that my position was eliminated, but I was given the opportunity to, uh, to interview for another position. And uh, I knew that it came down to me and another person. And one day on March 4th, 2011, I read Psalm 3410, which says this. And I read this in the morning. It said, lions may grow weak and hungry. But those that seek the Lord lack no good thing. Okay. That afternoon, I found out that I didn't get the position that I thought I was going to get. I'd finished second in a two-horse race. But I took encouragement from that because it says in God's Word, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Ultimately, I separated from the company. And like many of you that have gone through that, I I found myself occasionally 
or, or periodically asking, why? Why, God, why did this happen now? What are you trying to teach me? What are you telling me? And I came across 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, and it says, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Okay, I get it. A few verses before that, it actually says, God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. See, what I learned is when I am weak, God's Word gives me courage and gives me strength. When I'm in sorrow, God's Word brings comfort. When I'm in despair and distraught, God's Word brings hope. A few months later, the situation had changed a little bit, but, and I believed that God was leading me in a specific direction. I was firmly confident of that. I had what I believed was a word from God about that specific situation and where God was leading me, but the timing just wasn't working out. And during that time, I ran across in Hebrews chapter 10, this passage, it says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Now, notice that I didn't Google verses of encouragement or verses of comfort and come up with a list of 10 of them and pick one out that I really thought worked for me. God spoke during my normal course of being in His Word. It was just part of the daily habit that I was in and and just the normal reading that I was doing. And God spoke directly into my situation. Back when we did the Voices study back in the fall, we produced these bookmarks. And we're going to have them for you on the way out. You can have them until they're gone. This is a great bookmark to put in your Bible because it has some questions that help you process what God might be speaking to you about. And some of the questions, for example, is what does God reveal about His his character, about His ways? What does God reveal about His heart? What do I learn from God about myself in this passage? What do I learn from this passage? What do I learn about God from this passage? What is God asking me to do? I encourage you to pick these up on your way out. You know, the Word of God is not only active and living, but it's powerful. Look at the second half of that that verse in Hebrews. It says, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You know, the writer of Hebrews, what he was saying is that God's word penetrates to the very deepest part of our lives. Only the word of God is capable of exposing the thoughts and attitudes of the human heart. There is no heart that is so hard. There is no soul that is so dark. That God's word is not powerful enough to revive it, to restore it, 
and to transform it. I want you to hear a unique perspective. Cliff, why don't you come on up here? I want you to hear from Cliff. He and his family have lived on the other side of the world for about the last 10, 11, 12 years. And I want you to hear him tell stories of people encountering the Word of God, perhaps for the very first time. Uh, early on in our ministry, uh, Randy, Steve, and Sherry, who are here, came out to visit us with their kids. And we took them up to this uh, volcano, and which is a, a very popular tourist spot. And there were some Javanese uh, farmers sitting around. And while the family and the kids rode up to the volcano, I squatted down and I began to talk to this farmer. And uh, his name is Mr. Sam, and he, he's on the screen here with his wife. And um, he told me, he said, you know, Cliff, I believe that there's a God. And whether it's Hindu, Christian, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, I'm not sure, but I want to know him. And whatever the Muslim uh, priests and the Hindu priests have told me just don't make sense. And so I jumped right at the opportunity to tell him, well, the scriptures say that God created the earth and made it beautiful and perfect, but we, we messed it up. And from that point on, God the Father began to put into motion a plan to buy back this world. And I told him about the prophets prophesying about the coming one, about the prophets sacrificing uh, for the, the atonement of sin. And then I told him about Jesus coming to be the fulfillment of that prophecy, or, or all those prophecies, and the ultimate atoning sacrifice. And so after telling him these stories, this compilation of stories, I said to Mr. Sam, Sam, do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want to be made right? Do you want God to receive you? And he said, yes. So I said, well, pray with me and receive God through his son. And so we bowed bowed our heads and we began to pray. And after we prayed, I I opened up my eyes and he had wrapped his head in his sarong, his little blanket, and was weeping. And after a minute or two, he composed himself and he took the blanket off and he said, Mr. Cliff, I have been waiting my entire life to hear this. These scriptures I know are true because they have penetrated my heart. God's word is active and alive and it penetrates to the bone and marrow. We've seen it. We've had the privilege of seeing just telling God's stories do their work. It's not Cliff and Krista and my wife and kids convincing people or discussing the Trinity with a Muslim who doesn't believe that or whatnot. It's just us telling God's stories and then watching God's stories do its work. Do do you know God's stories well enough that if God brings to you his harvest, you're able just to tell the stories? For example, if you're in the grocery store and you're on the bread aisle and you see your neighbor there, can you jump from the bread to the gospel? How many stories in God's word are about bread? Or a few fishermen, there's lots of lakes around here. You're out fishing with your buddies. How many stories in God's word have to do with fishermen or lakes or fish? Or if you're at work and, and your, your coworkers are talking about their sick children, how many stories in God's word can, are about sick children? Do we treasure God's word enough that we marinate ourselves in God's word every day? We soak in it and eat it and partake of it so that when we're out in the world and God brings us that Samaritan woman, God brings us that person, the harvest to us, God's word just flows out of us. And it does this work in the heart of of mankind. We're convinced no matter what language, country, spot on the globe you are, 
If there's a soul that's in search of God, when you pour out God's word, he recognized that as being the voice of God. God has hardwired that, I believe, into the heart of mankind. Last story. We were building greenhouses, and this young man appeared on our doorstep looking for work. And so we hired him, and his name is Mr. Jess, we'll call him. And um, we were out sowing. I was, we were spreading fertilizer around in the field so that we'd have, you know, fertile soil. And it, it dawned on me, this is a great time to story. Once there was a farmer who went out to sow his seed, some of the seed fell on the path and the birds came and ate it, et cetera. And at the end of that, I said to him, you know, so Mr. Jess, what, what soil is your heart? What soil are you? And we went on about our, our, our you know, task and, a year and a half later, when he and his wife came to faith, I asked him, How, what made you leave your family? Because when you come to faith in this Islamic context, you're outcast. What made you do it? And he said, Cliff, that story you told me, you know, a year and a half or so ago, it's just kept percolating in my head. What soil am I? I know what you were saying. I knew what you were saying was right. And so I, I decided to accept Christ. God's word is not from us convincing. It's not us telling, you know, we don't have a seminary education. It, just tell God's stories. Do you have a passion? And is your prayer every day, Father, please, who are you going to bring to me today so that I can tell your stories? Do you know God's stories well enough? And I can, I can be kind of brave because I didn't. Here I am in my, you know, raised overseas. Now I'm a missionary. And here I am. I don't know God's word well enough. If you don't, pray, Lord, please give me a passion. Give me a desire for your word that I can know your stories so that I can be used in your harvest field right here in Bella Vista, Bentonville, Rogers, Fayetteville, wherever you may be. Jesus said, my father is, to this day is at work, and I too will be at work with him. Do you want to be at work with your father? I propose to you until you're out in the harvest fields working with him, there's much of him that you do not know. Thank you, Cliff. You know, what I'm afraid of is that we have developed a flu shot mentality toward the Word of God. I mean, this is flu season. A lot of us have had flu shots. And the way I understand flu shots are supposed to work is the vaccine uh, triggers the immune system with just a small dose of the virus. And then that triggers the body to build up an immunity so that you don't get the full-blown virus. You don't get the flu. And I'm afraid we have done the same. We have that same mentality toward the Word of God. We get just enough Jesus on Sunday to build up an immunity and avoid the full impact. I mean, if you're relying on a preacher... To hear from God, there's one, two things are happening. Number one, realize that you're at least one degree of separation removed from God's Word. And secondly, that your relationship with God is now dependent upon somebody else and their relationship with God. At the end of the day, what should drive us to Scripture is that it has the power to transform us. It can shape our spiritual walk. And it can mold our everyday lives. Chuck Swindoll said this, News articles may inform us, novels may inspire us, poetry may enrapture us, but only the living 
active Word of God can transform us. So the Word of God is living, it's active. The Word of God is powerful. And because of those things, the Word of God is to be treasured. You know, in October, just three months ago, God kind of got into my business a little bit. If you were here in mid-October, you may remember the time when we had the couch up here and and people sitting on the sides and we kind of did a a Bible study in real time, if you will, collectively. And the verse that we read, that they read at that time was Psalms 1 and 2. And in the message version of the Bible, it says, you thrill to God's word, you chew on scripture day and night. And that word chew just kind of jumped into my heart. And I thought, am I chewing on the Word of God? Do I care enough to chew on the Word of God? There's an English philosopher from the 1600s named Francis Bacon, and he was talking about the Bible when he said, some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, and a few to be chewed and digested. And it's not lost on me that a guy named Bacon is talking about testing and tasting and chewing and digesting and swallowing. But nonetheless... Through this experience, God revealed to me that I'd gotten lazy in my walk with Him. See, I have a a quiet place where I meet with God each morning. And there I've got a Bible and I've got a journal and I've got a devotional book. But over the weeks and over the months, I'd kind of gotten lazy with that. And instead of going to that place where I was meeting God, there's nothing sacred about that chair and those windows But that was where my mind was focused on God. I'd started reading His Word in my recliner in my living room with my laptop open. It was a lot easier. Unfortunately, that's the same position that I used to read email, ESPN, the news, Facebook. And I found myself reading in order to lead a communitas group discussion, but I wasn't really reading to hear from God. And God said to me, he said, you are reading my word like it's Facebook. You're just kind of skimming through, looking for something interesting. You're just kind of scanning it until something catches your eye. You're not really investing in my word. In, in my word. Psalm 119 is right in the very center of the Bible. In fact, if you open a Bible, likely you will land in Psalm 119 because it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's written by King David, who God described as a a man after his own heart, after God's own heart. Psalm 119 has 176 verses in it. Every one of them referenced God. 173 of those verses referenced God. The Bible in one form or another, some new synonyms like statutes and commands and laws and those sorts of things. But I started reading Psalm 119 and I found these verses written by David. Listen to the passion in these verses. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
I open my mouth and I pant, longing for your commands. Man, I thought, do I treasure the Word of God like David did? No, I don't. But I want to treasure God's Word like a man after God's own heart. See, these things degrade over time. In fact, they degrade with use. What what I love about this Bible is that it's not in a case, that it's worn and tattered and beat up around the edges. Because what I love about the Word of God is that only with use is its value enhanced. Only with use does it become more valuable. May we never again treat the Word of God as something that's common and ordinary. It is active and living and powerful and should be our treasure because that is how we hear from God. That's how we experience God.